This morning we continue our series of messages in the other side of yes, uh, looking at what's on the other side. There's only some things that God can teach you on the other side, and until you step to the other side, you never fully experience what God has intended for you. Pastor Mike did a great job last week of kicking off this series and the other side of serving. We all have an opportunity every day to face an obstacle or to overcome something or to chase a dream. And we have a choice to make. Will we work through it in the strength and power of God and get to the other side and see what's on the other side and experience what's there? Will we even attempt? Will we even try? Some of us don't even try because we think it's too difficult. It hasn't been done before. Uh, We have all these naysayers. And so we spend the majority of our lives on the wrong side of yes. Yet we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We have this unfair advantage. Every once in a while, we get an opportunity to see someone who chooses to walk to the other side. The cards that they've been handed weren't the cards that they wanted. The the circumstances or even the difficulties or adversities that were handed to them isn't what they would have chosen. Yet they choose to do more than just sit on it. They choose to try to go to the other side and use it. And when you see that, you don't forget it. Just recently, a lady by the name of Mandy Harvey was diagnosed with deafness. And she had a gift, which was music. And she chose to face her obstacle. She chose to keep trying and get to the other side of yes. Take a look at this true story. Hello. Hi, how are you? And what's your name? Uh, Mandy Harvey. And who's this? My interpreter. What's your name? Sarah. Nice to meet you, Sarah. Nice to meet you, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Doing well, thank you. Hello. Okay, Mandy, so I think I've worked this out. So you're deaf? Yes, I I lost all my hearing when I was 18 years old. Wow, and how old are you now? Uh, 29, so it's 10 years. Wow. And Mandy, how did you lose your hearing, if you don't mind me asking? I have a connective tissue disorder, so basically I got sick and my nerves deteriorated. Growing up, the only thing I wanted to do was sing. I ended up going to school for vocal music education so that I I could have that be my life. When I was in college, I thought I had an ear infection and it just got worse and worse. And by Christmas, I was borderline legally deaf in both ears. There was one day where the teacher was going to play the piano, and I had to chart out everything that he was playing. And I had my pencil ready, and everybody else's pencils start moving, and I'm just waiting for the test to start. And then one by one, every person just got up and left the room, and I just... I didn't hear enough to to even start the test. That was the last day I was a part of music program. That was a bad day. (laughs) We were sitting in the car together to come home. She said, Dad, I can't remember what your voice sounds like anymore. At that moment, you knew that Um, things would never be the same. Everything that I had ever wanted was just going away, and I couldn't stop it. The music is alive inside of her. The only question was, what could she do with it now? My dad suggested that we play a song. I said, well, that's crazy, but I had a guitar tuner, and I hummed my starting note and just went for it. Music now isn't about the sound, it's about the feeling. I'm excited, I'm nervous, I'm scared, so I'm just trying to (laughs) It's not the dream that I always had. That's okay, because I showed up, and I did something I never believed I could do. So, You were singing before you lost your hearing? 
Yeah, I've been singing since I was four. So I, I left music after I lost my hearing and then uh, figured out how to get back into singing with muscle memory, using visual tuners and trusting my pitch. So your shoes are off because you're feeling the vibration. Is that how you're following the music? Yeah, I'm feeling the tempo, the, the beat uh, through the floor. And Mandy, what are you going to sing? I'm going to uh, sing a song that I wrote called Try. Okay, can you tell me what it's about? After I lost my hearing, I gave up. But I want to do more with my life than just give up. So. Thank you. Good for you. Okay, well, look, this is your moment, and good luck. Uh, okay. going to need a translator for this. When you see something like that, uh, a bunch of things run through your mind in some form or fashion, is what, what's my excuse? And in some form or fashion, you realize that maybe I should try. And maybe I shouldn't give up, even though the obstacle seemed astronomical, and even though I've been handed something that, if left to my own, I never would have chosen this. In so many ways, we have an opportunity, just like Mandy had, to address our situation. And maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's one that it just seems too big and too difficult and too hard because everything seems piling up against you. But we have an opportunity to at least say, yes, God, I will try. And when we get to the other side, we get to experience what she just experienced. Grab your Bibles, I'm going to show you a story about a man that was in a similar situation, and he had an opportunity to at least try. And because he did, God used him in an astronomical, extraordinary way. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up, ushers will put one in your hand today. 
But turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and I ask you to stand with me as we read just as verses 1 through 4. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's read these words out loud together. Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4. Ready, read. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekilah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You may have a seat. Nehemiah was given information. He hadn't even seen these walls. And by the way, just to give you some historical context here, these walls had laid in ruins for 150 years. 150 years they had laid in ruins. And so Nehemiah, for the first time, as we can tell from the text, someone comes to him and says, he asks the question, what about the remnant in Jerusalem and Israel? What about them? What has happened? And they said this, that the walls have been torn down. And it says when he heard that information, that they, had, they were laid bare and that they were destroyed, it says that he wept and mourned for days and he prayed and he fasted. He was disturbed and he knew that he could do more than give up. He knew that we, he just couldn't let them remain the way they are. And so what it meant that even though he heard it, that for a period of 150 years, many other people came walking by these walls. Many other people saw the walls that were destroyed, and yet no one surfaced that was able to rebuild these walls. And Nehemiah hears it, and he says, God, we can't just sit here. we got to at least try and do something about it. So he goes to his God, it says he weeps and he mourns for days and he prays. And in verses that follow there, five through nine, it's this prayer that he articulates to God. And just hearing these things caused him to mourn and weep about it. And then in verse 10, it says this in Nehemiah chapter one, it says, he says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be what? What's the, what's the word? Attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your what? Servants who delight in revering your name. And he says this at the end of verse 11 of chapter 1. Please follow along. Give your servant what today? Success today. By granting him favor in the presence of of this man. And then he says something. We can't overlook this little phrase. It's as if he says, I wrote this because he did. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's important for us to see that the word the is not there. Because what it means in the original in the Hebrew, it's an indefinite article that's in front of the word cupbearer. If it was a definite cupbearer, then it would mean he was the only cupbearer. It would say, I was the cupbearer. But it's an indefinite article, and that means there were many other cupbearers. It meant for his sake, he was one of many. He wasn't the only one. He wasn't special in some way. He was just one of the cupbearers that went to work every day for the king. And so this cupbearer who was making, we could say, minimum wage, hears this story and says, even though I'm a cupbearer of many, I just can't sit here any longer and do nothing about this. Cupbearers during this time, their task literally was to taste food and to drink drinks to make sure there wasn't poison in them or some kind of cyanide, something toxic. And so before the king would eat, they would take the plate and bring it out and the cupbearer would cut the meat and he would take a piece off and he would stick his fork in it in front of the king and he would eat it. And during this time, if you wanted to kill the king, you would try to slip something into his food or into his drink. So every day that a cupbearer went to the work, when he said goodbye to his wife, she might say these words, well, I hope I see you later because she wasn't certain. And so every day that he went to work, it meant that his life was expendable and that his life, in many ways, wasn't worth anything other than to die for the king's sake. He tasted and tested food to see if it was poisonous. 
Can you imagine the conversation as he left the home in the mornings from his wife? Hey, don't drink the red Kool-Aid today because this might be your last. Or her embrace thinking this could be it. But that was his role. He was cupbearer, not the cupbearer for the king. And yet, even though his role in so many eyes was insignificant, he knew that because his God was big, he asked the Lord for success to rebuild these walls. He couldn't hear this information even before seeing it without wanting to do something about it. When I was a kid, and it's farther go, longer go each year as I age, but at 56... A long time ago, when I was a kid, we had a cartoon called Popeye. Anybody remember Popeye? And so Popeye literally was the good guy. And he would see something take place, and he would grab a can of spinach, and he would pop it open, and he would eat the spinach. And when something wasn't right or he was disturbed by it, he would say this, this is all I can stand, and I can't stand it no more. That was Popeye's line. That was his mantra. I can't stand it no more. Nehemiah is looking at these walls. He says, this is all I can stand, and I can't stand it no more. He couldn't just sit there any longer knowing that the remnant, his people, were in ruins, and the walls were in ruins. He knew that he must do something about it. He must try something. Get on the other side of yes. All of us have faced those encounters. Your dreams, your goals, your visions, your obstacles, the reports from the doctors, the child that you have, the future, this breakup that you find yourselves in. You can just sit there and let it remain in ruins for another 150 years or you can stand up and say, I can't stand it no more. That's what Nehemiah is willing to do in this case. I can tell you the history of Grace Community Church. 20 plus years, 22 and a half years ago when we came here, God had a plan for Grace Community. And it's a beautiful plan. Gather people together, reach the community for Jesus, make this a thriving community of people where many run to Jesus here and across the world. I love how God works those kind of things out. Dan Julian that you met today, Dan and Ann Julian, who were on our stage today. Yes, they're missionaries to, to Spain. But a long time ago, before we had worship like we had now, we didn't have an electric guitar player. We didn't have a drummer. We didn't have acoustic guitar player. We didn't have those full instruments. But as our church was moving forward to add those instruments, we were praying for instrument players. And so I remember praying, and, I, and one of my friends from seminary asked me, he said, hey, I'm thinking about coming your way and attending your church. And I said, well, tell me about your family. He says, well, I have a 17-year-old son. I have a 15-year-old son. He said, I have a daughter that's 19. And he says, oh, and by the way, my, my, my teenage son, the older, he plays the electric guitar, and our younger son plays the acoustic guitar. And you know what happened? A few weeks later, Dan Julian, standing here today, he was our first electric guitar player at Grace Community Church. <laughs> Because we believed in a vision and we believed that somehow God would supply and we stepped out in that and believed. And so Nehemiah sees it, knows that they can be rebuilt. It looks like it's too big to make happen, but he asks favor for the Lord and he reminds himself as he hears about these walls, I just can't sit here and do nothing about it. I would say it this way, our world is not seeing God because we are not attempting anything that only God can do. Our world is not seeing God because we are not tempting anything that God cannot do. The story of Grace Community is a beautiful story of faithfulness, of people before us. We get to stand on their shoulders of loyal people who are still here, who were part of the early group. You see, you and I walk in, my family, by the grace of God, was raised in this church, and we now have 31 mission points around the world, across the street, and we have seen literally 10,000 people come to Jesus Christ, literally, in the last 22 years, because there were a small group of people when our, we first started, 64 people, our two older kids doubled the children's ministry, 
That's all there was when we came here. And because of those faithful followers and servants, you and I get to experience and see what we're witnessing today. Nehemiah saw that. It would be difficult, but he knew he must step out in faith. But let me tell you something. The minute Nehemiah decided to do something, he got opposed. And so will you, and so will I. That dream, that report from the doctor, that, 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 that business venture, whatever it is, whatever it is, the minute you say, God, I am going to try with your help to get to the other side and make something of this and give you greater glory. The moment you choose to walk to the other side is the moment you will be opposed. However, many people who call themselves faith-filled christ followers spend the majority of their lives managing their mediocrity and fears trying their very best to keep their families safe i don't see that in scripture anywhere and year after year 150 years people walk by and saw those walls too hard too difficult boy that enemy's big and great you can never overcome that yet one man walked by and he says i can't stand it no more We must do something about this. And the second he began this process of rebuilding the walls, he began to be opposed. Can I let you in on some inside information? From a man, by God's grace, only by God's grace, from a family, the Brown family, only by God's grace and DeVries, that have spent the majority of their lives on the other side of yes, when the, hear me out, when the heat picks up and all hell break, begins to break loose in your life, don't give up because the victory line is near. Listen to me. Many of you are football fans, and I'm a football fan too, and I get to root for the Washington Redskins. There's four or five of us in the whole church. There's my brother here with me today. I'm glad you got your hat on again. Praise God. But there's this thing in, on a football field. It's not painted. It's called the red zone. The red zone is once you start working your way down the field 100 yards, when you get on the opponent's 20-yard line, from the 20-yard line in to the goal line, it's called the red zone. It's difficult to score in the red zone. And so as you march down, you could have the same running back down at his own 20 making a play, and he can scamper for five yards much easier than he can when he gets down. And the closer you get to the goal line, the defense picks up. There's not prevent defense. And the closer you get, the closer you get, the three, the two, the one, and when you get into the one-yard line, there's what we would call a goal line defense stance because they don't want you to score. And what I found, and I know that many of you in Nehemiah is finding, that the second the heat picks up and it gets more difficult to move forward, you're probably in the red zone. But the good news is this. You're 20 yards from scoring. You're 20 yards from punching it in. And with God's help, you can punch it in. You see, we often think that if we step out in faith and do God's will, it will be easy. Yet the opposite is true. The closer you get to accomplishing what God wants for your life, and in Nehemiah's case, building walls, guess what? He's in the red zone. And it gets more difficult to punch in the ball for the touchdown. Let me show you what I mean. First, he hears about it. And then he goes and inspects it. Look at chapter 2 and look at verse 11. He says, I went, Nehemiah, to Jerusalem. Chapter 2 and verse 11. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards Jackal Well and the Dung Gate, examined the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gate, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to him, you see the trouble we are in? 
Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. They're getting closer. They're in the red zone. They're getting closer to punching this in. Verse 20. I answered them, or verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they what? What's the word? Mocked and what us? Ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? The sarcasm just dripping from the pages, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us what? Success. We are servants. We'll start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to the historic right here. He inspected the walls. He reminded them that they would be successful because God was with them. He was rallying his troops and the opposition and the heat is turned on against them. You see, what we know is this. When you must step out in faith, and when you requires faith to overcome something, the closer you get to the goal line, the more the enemy will attack you. You see, the God of heavens and earth will give you success, and Nehemiah knew that. He knew that he had to do something. Meanwhile, everyone else had given up. So as you think back to that place, you always need someone in your corner. But there was this group faithful remnant that says, we'll join you, Nehemiah. We'll join you in this. We, we, we will defend. We will build. We will protect. And so he had this rallying troop. And as I was looking back and thinking it back, all you need is a couple people in your corner. And often, for me, along the way, my greatest supporter along the way, I can't tell you how many times along the way when God was calling us to another step in Grace Community Church, and, and, and I, I would share with my wife after praying about it to collectively together, God brought it to mind for both of us, and she would say this, I believe in you, Jimmy Brown, I believe in you. Like, I'll just go build the wall by myself. I mean, all it takes is one or two people, and Anne has always been there, and now Nehemiah is rallying his troops, there's a small group there, that even though it seems huge, they're willing to try to get through and do this. So what happens? Opposition picks up. They get closer. They start rebuilding. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. When Sanballat heard what they were, they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates, chapter 4 and verse 2, in the armies of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Look at the sarcasm. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubbish or rubble? Burned as they are. Tobiah the Ammonite who was at the side said, What are they building, dude? Look, even if a fox was climbing, they would break down that wall. And then Nehemiah wrote this. Hear us, our God. For we are despised. Turn their insults back on their stinking heads. Paraphrase Jim Brown. Give them over as a plunder in the land of captivity. And then he says this. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight, your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. They mocked and laughed at them. Yet Nehemiah knew if God is in it, then nothing will stop it. So the heat picks up. Maybe they march the ball to the 10-yard line. Now it's first and 10 or first and goal from the 10. And it gets more difficult to punch it in. But the enemy will heat, heat up his attacks on you the closer you get to the goal line. So they do so. So watch what happens in verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very what? Angry. They all, all of them, plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. They brought their biggest linemen. They brought their best linebackers. They brought in their best safety and defensive backs. It says, we can't let them score. And then it says this, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. 
Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us how many times over? Ten times over. Look what it says, ten times over. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. It's, it's, the, it's the few that says, we'll shoot our eye out. We're going to die. We're going to die. Let's stop. It was so much easier before. Nehemiah, you're nuts. You're crazy. Stop it. Ten times over, like each day they would come, you're going to shoot your eye out. You're going to shoot your eye out. Have you ever had those people? Don't you just love them? Oh, come, let me hug you. Jesus, help them, love them. Let me hold, hold me, baby, hold me. Just hold them. You know those people, don't you? The closer you get when the heat is on, like they're with you, they're with you, they're with you. But then when it starts to cost them something, they start getting blisters, or all of a sudden it didn't kind of turn out the way they want it, or they're not getting what they want. It didn't, like, well, I thought it was going to look like this. Oh, no, it's too hard, it's too difficult. Ten times over. They're getting closer. They're on the nine. They're on the eight. And then when they get to the one yard line, ten times over, we can't do this. We can't do this. Kick a field goal. No, we need to score. That's the picture there. The closer you get to the goal line, even your own will turn on you. Let me say this, and you have experienced this too. I have witnessed firsthand When change is about to take place, and the closer you get, you have a rallying group of people that are with you, but when they realize, he's serious about that, they flee. They run. Or they tell everyone, it can't happen. It's never happened before. We'll all shoot our eyes out. Ten times over. There are moments, hear me out, in your faith journey and my faith journey, when we're all by ourselves, when no one is around, it's just you and your wife and your God that you know God is with you can come hell or high water, you will make it because he is with you and you can't stand it no more. You gotta take that stand. You gotta get and rally your troops. It's, 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 the, it's the quarterback in the huddle. It's fourth and one. And he can see the fear in some of his guys' eyes and he rallies them in. And he says this, we're going to score. We're going to score. We're going to score. And we're going to put it on the scoreboard. And we're going to win this game. Even though it's been hard to get to this point, even though they're big, I'm going to hand the ball off to the running back. You're going to block. You're going to block. You're going to block. And we're going to push him back. We're going to score. Okay? Okay. And then it's that running back, getting in his stance, taking the ball, and following through his guard and tackle and scoring because his God is with him. It's in those moments that you have a choice to make. Will I believe that my God will get us through this? You see, during those times, opposition picks up. Ten times over, it's the gossip mills that begin to talk. And by the way, let me just say a few things, and people much wiser than me who have been through way more than I have, I know when you're gossiping. (laughs) Like, it gets back. It's obvious. And by the way, I just pray and say, oh, Lord, help them see. Open their eyes. And I know when those rumor mills have started through the years. I, I, I've been there. I know. I know. Like, listen, I know that I get toasted all the time. I'm okay with that. If I didn't, I would have punted long ago. But we must be willing to do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus Christ. We can't stand it no more. So Nehemiah has a choice to make. Will he continue? And he does. And then something happens that's just incredibly beautiful. Verse 14, he says, I need to put him in the huddle. So he says, hey, team, come here. And he grabs him in the huddle and he looks at him. And he reminds him of this truth that many of us are familiar with. Nehemiah 4.14. Look what he says. After I look things over, I stood up. And said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because our Lord is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers. Fight 
for your sons and daughters and your wives and your homes. Can you picture this quarterback in the huddle saying, no, no, we're not retreating. We're not going to shoot our eyes out. God has called us. He wants these walls rebuilt. Too many people will be impacted by the decision. I'm handing you the ball and you're scoring, okay? Yeah, okay. That's the picture. That's where that verse comes from. Do you know who's saying that? The cupbearer. The cupbearer of many. He is saying, we can do this and we cannot sleep now because our God is great and he is able to get us through. So watch what happens. Chapter four, look what continues in verse 20. Nehemiah's rallying his troops some more and he says in verse 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continue the work with half the men holding spears with the first light of dawn till the stars came out and at that time also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. He said God will fight for us at some point in this journey to the other side of yes, a line must be drawn in the sand that says, I will not retreat. I can't stand it no more. There's got to be a defining moment. This was Nehemiah's defining moment. Maybe that's where you need to move to today. No, Satan, you will not win. Even though the pressure's up, even though there's sickness in the house I've never experienced, even though the debt seems to be surfacing, even though I feel weak, even though I have people that were once with me and no longer with me, even though it looks like a, 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 a little team, we will win because God is with us. And you snap your chin strap on, and at 165 pounds, you ask the quarterback, give me the ball. I'm going to try, and if I don't try, I, then I am saying that God is not able. And listen to me, you don't always score either, but at least you can go down trying. I would much rather go down trying than not trying. So they try to intimidate. That's not it. Look what happens next. In chapter 6 and verse 9, Nehemiah says, They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for their work. It will not get completed. But he said, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Verse 11, they tried to, to put this story against him. And it says in verse 11, but I said, should I, a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple and save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sinbala had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. He won't retreat. He's not backing up. You see, you must hold on when the lies begin to surface about you or your mission or your dream. And even when Satan whispers these things, here's what he whispers. I've heard him over and 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 over. Here's, here's his whispers. You will look foolish when it all fails. <laughs> You'll look like a fool. No one will be there to help you see it through. The money will not be there. You aren't strong enough to punch it through. Is this really God's plan or is this your plan? Or your family will be broke if you keep pushing through. But what we need to say, but if God is with us and who could ever stop us? Because our God is great and awesome. You see, I believe this with all of my heart. And I believe this even at 56 years old. I would rather live my life trying and failing and looking foolish than let the walls of Jerusalem and Goshen lay in destruction. So get used to it. I can't stand it no more when I see people who don't know Jesus. <laughs> and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And you have a team of believers and a church and leaders that are willing to do the same. You see, the only thing in the way to making it happen is often you. We begin to play it safe when it's more difficult. 
I wonder how many of us have bailed because of these things, because of selfishness. Oh, I got to give up, and it might cost me like some of my IRA, or it might cost me more time, and I might have to spend more time, and, and I might have to move to a different place, and, or because we're just cowards. Like, I like being comforting here, and it's, it's a good place, and it's a safe place, and our kids can have this, and we can have that, and it'd be too difficult to go there. Or, I'm afraid if I do that, then it'll hurt this relationship or this person, and that means that they'll no longer like me anymore. Or, I want to please man instead of please God, or my pride. Like, what if I fail? What if we don't make it, God? How will that people look at me like, well, I told you, you shouldn't have followed them. I can't tell you how many times that whisper has come like, hey, Jim, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, and people are going to laugh at you. And I say, oh, I don't care. God's called me to it. I'll go down trying. Or it's too hard. Or we just believe the lies of the enemy. You see, you and I have what it takes to punch the ball in. And if we don't do it, then who will do it? I love watching people who take what's been stacked against them and use it for God's glory and overcome. I love the Mandy Harvey story. It just inspires me. I love stories like that. I love one of our own, and many of our own, I should say. And many of you are familiar with the story, but Jason Veenstra, I love his courage. (laughs) And if you don't know him, get to know him, because you'll grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jason was electrocuted a few years back, cutting a tree limb and ended up in the, the wires, and, and it basically took his life. And, and if you know him like I know him, there's all kinds of spots on his body where the electric went out. He has scars, and he lost fingers, and he lost his thumb. And, but it didn't stop him. <laughs> I've watched him go over to Asia's Hope for our kids, our orphans in Asia, in Cambodia, and Thailand, and... They love him to pieces. He's like a dad to them. And, and, and one of his hands, his right hand, he doesn't have a thumb, so they come up to him and try to thumb wrestle him. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. You see, you know what, Jim? He said, they were the first group of people who made me realize I wasn't a monster <laughs> because they loved him. You see, he was a sheriff before he was electrocuted, and he's a tree trimmer. And he wanted to go back and become a sheriff again. And when you become a sheriff, you have to be able to shoot a gun with both hands. A nine millimeter or a revolver. And he doesn't have a thumb on his right hand. Have you ever tried to shoot a gun without a thumb? You haven't, unless you don't have a thumb. But he wasn't willing to give up. And I remember asking him, his left hand he can shoot. He, he's missing one of his fingers. He only has three fingers in the thumb, and he could shoot. That's his strong hand, so he was able to shoot. But he said, you know what, Jim? You have to shoot with both hands. I said, what was that like? Like, how did you do that? How do you even hold a, a revolver? I'll never forget what he said. He said, be honest, it was a bloody mess. But I had to do it. Because I wanted to be an officer. He said, I didn't have to hit the target, and I didn't but I fired the gun. You see, you got to try. And I love Nehemiah here. 150 years, people walked by and did nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But when he walked by, he said, I can't stand it no more. And God is about to use this cupbearer. The lowest of lowest. I mean, he flipped burgers at McDonald's and worked the drive-thru window at minimum wage. You see, often the very thing that's in the way is us. But the blessings on the other side of yes are unbelievable. Look at the blessings. Like, look, look at chapter 6. You don't need to look far. Look what happened on the other side. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Look what happened on the other side. There's this list of men of Israel. Look, I mean, just verse 9, Sheptea, and then verse 10, Error, there's 700, 652, and then Elam, 1254, and we don't even know these people, like Aiden, 655, and verse 23, Beze, 324 family members, and, and 32, Bethel and Ai, 123, and then, wow, look at verse 34, 1254. If you go over to verse 66, it says, the whole company numbered. 42,360, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves. And they also had 245 male and female singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Why? 
They came back. Why? Because one man believed in his God. One man. These people would have been laying in ruins forever. You see, if we believe that God can do it through us, then he will help us punch it through for him. The benefits are incredible. So what's on this other side? There are so many incredible blessings. It's that deep satisfaction of knowing at least you tried. At least tried to fire the gun. I at least tried to sing. It's to be able to say I trusted God when I, it didn't make sense to others and he received greater glory. It's having that testimony said, oh, that for many years no one thought it, but hey, I, we rallied some troops and we believed and we're the remnant that's left. And when the families had that family reunion and every name and every tribe came and they had this large family reunion, 49,000 family units and the donkeys, they all came. And they said, how did that happen? Hey, there was this cupbearer making minimum wage for the king. Who? Cupbearer. What? Yeah. He believed in his God. And because he believed in his God, we're free. We're free. We're free. We're free. It's the lessons learned along the way that deepen your faith. It's building those faith deposits. So when this next thing comes, it's like sometimes people will ask, how can you believe that way? Because I've watched God do this 6,000 times before. It's the smile you have on your face as you lay your head on the pillow at night. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have conversation. We just kind of smile. We say, isn't our God good? Oh, when you go to bed with a smile on your face, there's nothing like it. It's the unexpected surprises that come on the other side. Well, I never knew that was going to happen. It's the lives that are changed as a result of getting there. Can I just say this as lovingly and, and gracefully as I can? Some of you wouldn't be saved had it not been for a faithful remnant 22 years ago <laughs> called the Cheeks and the Wellings and the Weavers and the Hoovers and who said, you know what, you're crazy, bub, but we're, we believe in you. <laughs> and you don't have to wonder for the rest of your life how it might have turned out if you at least tried. Are you constantly saying, I wish I would have done that when I was 16. I wish I would have done that when I was 26. I wish I would have done that when I was 28. I wish I would have done that when I was 30. I wish I would have tried when I was 40. I wish I would have tried when I was 50. I wish I would have tried when I said, why didn't I try now that I know? Listen, it's not too late to start today. Just try. I got to show you what happened to Nehemiah. And this isn't why he did what he did. But look what happened on the other side of yes. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 1. It kind of gets lost in the story, but it's so very important. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1, says this. There was an agreement made with the people, and then it says this in Nehemiah chapter 10, and verse 1. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the what? Governor! Come on, that's awesome. That's good preaching. I don't care who you are. That's incredible. Compared to governor. He went from flipping burgers to the highest seat in the nation outside of king. Why? Because he trusted in his God. Why, you might ask, is this important? Because he chose to give his best shot and try to rebuild the walls. Think about what happened on the other side. His name is inscripturated forever. Listen. He got to write a book in the Bible. Like, that's pretty awesome if you ask me. He got to write his own book. And not only that, we benefit from his faith and his courage for generations and generations and generations. By the way, hear me out. Had Nehemiah not walked by and said, I can't stand it no more, there would not be Fight Club as we know it. 
And 550 charters in our world would not be here today. And why are they? Oh, Nehemiah didn't know that 4,000 years ago. But guess what? The benefits keep giving when we walk to the other side of yes. Same with... Mandy Harvey, by the way, I did a little research on her and listened to some of her beautiful music. And here's what I found out about Mandy Harvey. She's on tour (laughs) in fall of 2018. She's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada. She's going to be in Scottsdale, Arizona, Durango, Colorado, Greeley, Colorado, Houston, Texas, Rock Island, Illinois, Brookings, South Dakota, Des Moines, Iowa, Omaha, Nebraska, and Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Why? Why is she? Because she tried. And she wrote this song that she sang, and maybe you didn't catch all the words. These are her words to the song, Try. I don't feel the way I used to. The sky is gray much more than it's blue. But I know one day I'll get through and I'll take my place again. So I will try. So I will try. I don't love the way I need to. You need more and I know that much is true. So I fight for our breakthrough and I'll breathe in you again. If I would try, if I would try. There's no one for me to blame because I know the only thing in my way is me. I don't live the way I want to. The whole picture never came into view. And I'm tired of getting used to the day, so I will try, so I will try. If I would try, if I will try. Hear me out, Grace. The other side of trying is good. It's hard. But when you punch the ball in in the red zone, you sleep with a smile on your face at night because Jesus gets greater glory. Oh, God, help us. I pray, God, whatever that thing is that we've kind of retreated from or backed away from, I pray that we would no longer retreat. I pray, God, that we would just try. Help us to be followers like Nehemiah who get disturbed and distraught and are willing to do whatever it takes to get to the other side of yes. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you next week.